it's going. All right, so let's turn to uh, Revelation 19. We're going to be in verse 11. So, yeah, if you, anybody that didn't get handout, uh, raise your hand and Robin will get those to you. So just keep your hand up till Robin gets there. Thank you, Robin. All right, so as we come to Revelation chapter 11, uh, or chapter 19, verse 11, uh, this is the uh, process of the Lord's return uh, presented here in Revelation 19. It's also covered in other passages, and we'll look at some other uh, places where Revelation 19 or this same material is covered uh, next week as we see that uh, this is not the only place that God has talked about this subject. The Old Testament uh, prophets present uh, this message and all the way up to uh, the, the writing of the apostles. Uh, God taught about his return. God spoke about it. The people believed for it. Old Testament prophets were full of it. Jesus spoke of it. Paul wrote about it. Uh, Peter wrote about it. John wrote about it. And so it is an important element for the church to believe in the Lord's return, to expect that turn, to look for it, to long for it. And Paul even uses the phrase that love those who love his appearing. So there's uh, an important element for us uh, as we look at this. Now, we've come to verse 11, and this is the uh, presentation of the, uh, the actual second coming. Uh, there are a number of uh, other passages, like I said in the, a minute ago, like Daniel and, and Matthew and Luke, uh, who also bring up this material, Zechariah. Uh, other passages, but this is how John had it presented to him. And uh, as I said in one of my earlier lessons, this is one of those, it's like, wait a minute, the movie's over too fast. You know, you went, sat down expecting a two-hour movie and everything's over in just a few minutes. Uh, I paid that much for this? Yeah, but this is the Lord's coming. So, and you paid what? You paid nothing. Yeah, you paid nothing. This is all, all free for those who believe. So Paul says, Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven open. He'd seen so many different things, so many things changing, changing, changing. A lot of them dark. A lot of them incredibly dark. Uh, yet this, finally, I saw heaven opened, and behold, or the, the, it's a very strong word, look, a white horse. And so he sees this, this horse coming from the heavens. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
debate what a guess who this could possibly be. <laughs> All right. The word of God is Jesus. Yes, this certainly is. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this, uh, this second coming is a, is a glorious um, event that is actually going to be seen throughout the world. So the whole world will uh, be able to uh, see this. You say, how, how can that happen? How can people on the opposite side of the world see something that's happening, you know, say, say this happens over Jerusalem? God lives outside of physical limitations. He will make it happen. If he says, every eye will see it, then what? Every eye will see it. And so this is something that we see that God is not restricted by things that we think are restrictions. That's why for God, miracles are not impossible. Miracles are not out of the ordinary. That's just who God is. God lives in that kind of a, a space. God lives outside of time. So to him, nothing Nothing in the future is an option. He knows. If you make this choice, he knows where that's going to be. If you make that choice, he knows where that's going to be. And not just for you, because you could keep him busy all the time. He has to do it for me, too. And that really keeps him busy. <laughs> Watching every choice that I could potentially make. So in all these things, God rules outside of these things. So when we, we see this passage, we, we see things described in a physical way. We've got to realize that there's more to it than just the physical presentation. So when it says he's on a white horse, it's not just about the white horse. It's what he's doing. He's riding upon this. And so that is the important element. And uh, we see all of these armies coming, and they're arrayed in fine linen, and they're ready to do battle with him. Is that right? Yeah, yeah but what? They don't get to. Yeah, he's just like, no, you don't get a sword. You don't get a spear. You don't get a bow and arrow. And it doesn't even mention, you know, the angels have any of those. Uh, it's all about him. And so he's going to do all of this. So there's many scriptures in the Old Testament that, that describe this same event. But just let's, just let's look at two here. Uh, Isaiah 64, verses 1 and 2. You have that there in your notes. And um, Isaiah cries out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The mountains might quake at your presence. As when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries 
and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Now, I know there's times that we have, we have used this, you know, we asking God to rend the heavens and come down, and that, that, that's good. And I believe that there are awakenings, there are uh, events that have taken place in this earth where it seems like God has rent the heavens and it's just suddenly a supernatural work of God that just shows up. But this really, this passage isn't really about the church age. It's about the end of the tribulation. It's when God comes down and brings all these things and that all the nations tremble at his presence and that the mountains split. What mountains split? Well, Zechariah helps us understand that. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14 verse 3 says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. That's all those nations that have gathered together at what we call Armageddon in the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, but I actually believe these nations are also scattered throughout the world. God is not just doing one battle in one valley uh, in Israel. He's, he's going to do this battle throughout the whole world. Why? Because every eye will see him and every army that is opposed to him and every person that has taken a hand against God will be involved in this battle. And so the Lord will go out and fight those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. So he is going to be there, but everywhere throughout the world, they're going to see it. And his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. So just on the east side. And the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And then what is described is that then a fountain opens up and it flows both to the east and to the west, and it flows to the east all the way to what we know as the Dead Sea, and it flows all the way to the west to what we know as the Mediterranean. And so this great rift opens up. And Messiah comes and enters uh, the holy city of Jerusalem through that. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is not just king. He's not just Lord. He's the king of everyone who calls himself a king. Everyone who thinks they are a king. Even the guy at Burger King. Right? He's the king over every king. And if, if Jesus could just get those commercials off of television, I would really be happy. They have the worst commercials of anyone I've ever seen. Anyway, um, that's not in the Bible, but uh, just extra for you there. And uh, he, is, he is now come, and all the titles that are going to be given to him, uh, we're going to look at a few of those tonight, all these titles... Uh, relate to Christ in his divine judging power. He's faithful. He's true. He's uh, pure. He's righteous. He wages war, but not like we do. And so in all these things, he is the true word of God. And so he is going to descend and bring these things to pass. So let's go back and, and start to look at these individual passages, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white 
horse. Now, a lot of people make uh, quite a bit about the white horse, um, that Jesus comes riding on a white horse. I don't find, this is Jeff, I don't find the white significant because the Antichrist came on a white horse also. And so this white horse is not, to me, is not the significant thing. The significance is that he's no longer on donkey. Now he's on the horse. And when a Roman uh, commander had waged war and he was coming back with his armies, he came into the city riding on a horse. Even the Jewish people had that expectation, so much so that when they see Jesus coming on a donkey, it's like, what's he doing? He's riding on a donkey. What is, why, why is it, it's, it's the foal of a donkey. It's not even fully grown. What, what's going on? Where's, where's his white horse? If he's this Messiah that we've been waiting for, what's he doing? He's coming to die. He's coming to die. He's not coming to rule. He's not coming to conquer. And that's what upset a number of people. Um, the number of the people that had expected him to do that, they kind of lost their attention in that. The, uh, the Jewish people, some of them wanted him to come as Messiah. Uh, we might think that the Pharisees did. They really didn't. Because if he came as Messiah, then all of their important status would disappear. The Sadducees, who was the priestly uh, people, all of the priests and the Levites belonged to the uh, the group called the Sadducees, and uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection anymore. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. Uh, they were in it for money. And by the time of Jesus, Caiaphas, uh, Annas, who were the high priests kind of co together, uh, they, they were all in it for themselves. The priesthood was all about gaining. That's why they charged in the temple. That's why they... Uh, took money from the people. Um, they, they really didn't want the Messiah to come because they'd lose their business big time. But they kind of presented that to the people, but it's not really what they wanted. The Herodians, those who followed after Herod, they didn't want it at all because to them, who was king of the Jews? Herod was, but he wasn't even a Jew. So that kind of falls apart. And all he was in there was a political kingdom and for wealth, and he was wealthy. But, see, Jesus is coming as this conquering hero now. He came once to die. Now he's coming to rule. And so as he comes to rule, the rules are different. <laughs> things, things are altogether different. He's not like he was before. I, there are... There is no one who's going to grab him and, and, as it says in the book of Isaiah, pluck out his beard. No, no one's going to do that. No one's going to spit upon him. No one's going to abuse him. No one would even think about grabbing him and putting him on a cross and crucifying him again. No one would even think of that as he appears. The chance is not even there. And the opportunity suddenly disappears when they see him coming in his glory. 
And so he enters in as the Roman generals or even as the Jewish people had this expectation of the Messiah coming in this manner. The white does in many places symbolize uh, unblemished, uh, holy character. But like I said, the problem with that is the Antichrist comes riding on a white horse also. And so that kind of messes up some of the details. But uh, there is something about the white. The saints are dressed in white. The angels are dressed in white. Old Testament saints are dressed in white. So white does have significance with heaven. And the fact that they're all coming from heaven indicates that that is, uh, the, in a sense, the color of heaven. So if you don't like white, you better get over it because there's going to be a lot of white in heaven. And the horse, the fiery eyes, the crowns upon his head, and the sharp sword coming out of his mouth, ruling with a rod of iron and the wine press that he's going to tread, all of those things are symbolic. Jesus doesn't really have a physical sword coming out of his mouth. I've seen people where they've tried to draw this kind of image and they try to make a please don't. It's just, it's grotesque. It's, it's actually silly. All right. And so uh, it's, just, it's just strange because he doesn't have a sword. It's his words. His word, it's what he says is like a sword that cuts through everything. What he looks at, these fiery eyes, is like him looking through you. Uh, it's you also finding yourself in them. And so they are mesmerizing. They are uh, attention drawing. You cannot, you cannot avoid his gaze. And, you know, it's just one of those, uh, those issues that we see. So it's not about the rod, and it's not about a physical wine press. It's about what it symbolizes and what these things stand for. So as we go through, we'll see how these things apply. But John is, uh, as we said before, he's overwhelmed. This is, he's seen a lot of visions up to this point. He's seen thing after thing. He's seen incredible scenes of of glory incredible scenes of destruction and now he sees this and it's like finally i remember where john was the last time he saw jesus on the mount of olives watching him ascend that's the last time he saw him and now what's he doing he's coming right back oh isn't that what the angel said yeah, I thought so. Yes, that's exactly what the angel told them. This same one that you see go will come again in like manner. And he will come to this very location, right to the Mount of Olives. And I believe, this, this is Jeff, it doesn't say he can't describe this, but I believe that when Jesus went out and went up to the place where he was going to ascend, he went exactly to the place he's going to touch down when he comes back. That's a Jeff thing, right? Don't say I prophesied that. Don't say I said it's in the Bible, because it's not. I just believe it's the exact location, because that's what he said. The one who you see go, you will see returning. And so as Jesus returns, then he begins seeing all these other things. 
So let's look at the rest of verse 11. It says, And the one sitting on it, on this horse, is called Faithful and True. Two names uh, that are used here. He's called Faithful and True. Uh, faithful needs almost no defining. If, if God is nothing, he is faithful. And that really sums up so much of God's life. He's faithful. If he said he would do it, what? He will do it. He's faithful. In fact, in the New Testament, that statement is found three times. God is faithful. He is faithful and true. He who said it is faithful. He will do it. And so over and over, the New Testament tells us that God is faithful. The Old Testament tells us that he is faithful over and over. The things that we would want to see about God, that is the most significant thing about his name. If you do a survey of the Bible, I know I've, I've used this phrase before, if you do a survey of the Bible, the number one thing that mankind and angels say about God is that he is holy. And so why? Because we see him as altogether different. He's not like us. And he's not like us in his word. He's not like us in his ways. He's not like us in what he does. He's not like us in his nature. Uh, he's, he's not like us. And thank God he has redeemed us so that we could do what? Be like him. Well, so then we are called holy. We're supposed to be altogether different than we were. So, holy. That's what we say. That's what the angels say. But the number one thing God says about himself from the Old Testament through the New, the number one thing that comes up over and over is faithful. God is faithful. Covenant keeping. He says it in a numbers of different ways. You can look at it in the Old Testament in several different word uh, systems. You can see it in the New Testament in different ways. But God is faithful, 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 faithful. Why? Because... That's what makes him different. God says, I'm faithful. We say, you are holy. You're different. Why? Because there's almost nothing else in this world that is faithful. People bind themselves with blood. They bind themselves with oaths on their mother's grave. Right? People do all kinds of strange things, I promise. Uh, when we were kids, don't do this today, when we were kids, we would cut our hands and make little blood covenants, right? And so we would, yeah, as children, we mingled our blood. I know, I was back in the primitive days, you know, we still chiseled, you know, in stone, um, yeah. But we did that. Come on, who else, when you were a kid, you made little blood covenants, yeah. And you know what? Before the thing was over with, we were fighting each other. <laughs> and uh, you're my best friend, or today, BFF, you're my best friend forever. And then tomorrow, I don't want to see this person. I've erased them from my Facebook and all my social media. I don't want to hear from you again. Um, blah. Yeah. There's no faithfulness. 
Our cars are supposed to last a certain period of time. Your tires are supposed to last a certain period of time. Your house mortgage you know, situation is supposed to be. And then I find out, you know, I get a note from somebody who says, hey, we're your new mortgage people. How did that happen? Who are you and, and, and how did you get to be my mortgage person? We bought your mortgage. Well, I'm not so happy about that. Why? Because the other people were not faithful. So faithfulness is one of those things that sets him apart. And it, 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 it's so much God that it hardly needs any kind of definition. He just is. He just is. He's faithful. He does what he promises. And so they'll put some scripture references down there. Uh, you can look at that. 2 Corinthians one twenty is one of those. Um, every promise of God is what? Yes and amen. amen. God is true. He's faithful. But that's also found several other places in the New Testament. The other thing is what he says is true. It's true. If Jesus said it, it's true. He never spoke lies. Now, he, he had this wonderful conversation with big quotation marks with a man named Pontius Pilate. Oh, what is truth? How, how many of you know if Jesus had really entered into that debate, Pontius Pilate would have been made to look like an idiot in in very short time. All right, it'd be like me sitting down and and trying to play chess, you know, um, with Gary Fisher or whatever whoever those guys were. I can't do it. I can't do it. Or me sitting down trying to play a video game with a teenager. I, I don't know what buttons to push. I don't know what I'm supposed to watch on the screen. I got no idea. I, I'm sorry, Daniel. I've just got no idea. You know? But um, Jesus said it's true. It's true. There's no failing. There's no facade. His words are life. He, he said what he wanted to say. He said exactly the way he wanted to say it. If it takes us generations to figure out some of the things that he said, so be it. They're still true. Some of the things Jesus said are hard. Some of them are kind of confusing. And you, you read it three or four times, and you think, okay, I know, I know there's like a really real truth in here, but I've been found passages in the Bible that's like, man, I got to read it over and over and over, and I know I'm going to get it, but bad right now it just isn't coming but if jesus said it it's true and whether we vote for it or against it changes nothing so the bumper sticker years ago god said it i believe it that settles it right no god said it that settles it Believe it or not, it's still true, right? So you can take yourself out of the way because you don't control whether what Jesus said is true or not. It's settled because he said it. And if you really want to look at it, it was settled before he said it. So 
He comes and as his name, his name is faithful and true. And then it goes on and it says, and then he, that he judges. Read the rest of that uh, 12, 12, or 11th verse. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And notice the phrasing. It doesn't say he makes righteous war or he judges righteously. It says in righteousness he judges and makes war. So the main subject here is the issue that whatever he does is in righteousness, which means it's in proper balance with everything that God has established. Righteousness is a, is a Greek word which means in balance, full balance. It's, there's, there's no tipping of the scale. It's balanced. God is righteous and just. And how many are glad he's raised you up to be righteous also? We are in full balance with God Amen. through Jesus Christ, right? My righteousness is in Christ. It's not in me. It's in him. And so because I'm in Christ, I'm in full balance with God. And so the idea of things being balanced, it, it, right, there's no, there's no prejudice with God. There's no bias with God. There's no hypocrisy with God. There's no playing favorites with God. Sorry, I know, you thought you are God's favorite. Uh, there's no favorites with God. There's no, none of God irritated at you and it's like okay that's it I'm done with you no God's righteous and so if he's going to judge which he's going to do his judgments are going to be what in righteousness he judges we're going to see some things and we have seen some things we don't like and some of the things that we're going to see in just the next few verses, the world doesn't like. They like a Jesus that is loving. As long as what he's loving is what they love. But they don't like a Jesus who judges. Who makes statements that are true that they don't like. And so the world picks and chooses how they want to believe in Jesus. But Jesus doesn't go that way. Okay, what's, uh, what do you really want me to do? Jesus comes down and says, let's take a vote. We're going to take a poll. How many want me to do this? So we're going to poll society. Uh, and I'm not going to use just a sample poll. I'm going to poll every person upon the face of the earth. I'm going to poll people who were alive in the past and people who are going to be alive in the future i'm going to pull everyone and i'll do what you want me to do so we'll go that way right is that the way jesus comes no he comes and says i said this i've been saying this from the beginning i haven't changed god never changes he never lies he never deceives so if he said it in the beginning he said it another time he said it another time he said it another time Maybe by a different way, maybe through a different voice, maybe in a, in, a, in a picture, whatever. God said it, that's what he said over and over and over and over. It's true. It's not because some preacher today said Jesus is the only way to salvation. It's because that's what God has been saying from the beginning. 
and even before time began, what does it tell us? The lamb was slain. Before you were here, before you had any input, before you got to have a voice, God said, I'm going to send my son, and from in him, all salvation will be, all redemption will be. The lamb was slain before there was ever an earth, before there was ever time. From the foundation of time, the lamb was slain. So when he comes to judge, that's what he's standing on. I've said it all these years. That's what's true. And because he's faithful and he's true, he's not going to change his judgment. You know, we change things so much. The ways that we need to communicate, you know, I'm learning ways to communicate with this generation. And, and because they don't communicate like communicating in my generation. But I can't overlook them can't neglect them so how am I going to communicate to this generation that's alive right now so God's word never changes so what methods do I need to change to minister his word that never changes Paul wrestles with that first Corinthians chapter 9 if you want to read it first Corinthians chapter 9 verses 19 through 23 Paul wrestles with that whole question. So I become this, I'll become that, that I might win some. All right? So, but Jesus is going to come and judge in righteousness. What else is he going to do in righteousness? What's the next word? Make war. Make war. And he wars. It's, in the Greek, it's one word. He wars. And he makes war. And he is going to come and his war is what? Righteous. How can a war be righteous? You know, we look at what's going on in parts of the world. Yeah, Ukraine, but there's other parts of the world. There's parts of Africa. There are parts of South America. There are parts all over the world where there is, quote, warfare. People are dying. And their wars are not righteous. And they can't make war in a righteous manner. It just doesn't work. Soldiers went to combat. They go to combat maybe fighting for a cause. But before long, how many veterans do I have in here? Before long, you're not fighting for a cause. You're fighting for your brother. You're fighting for your friends. The cause may be behind it. And you may decide, as Homer said, you may decide, I'd rather fight this battle here than let it come in my country. But the truth is, you end up really fighting for your friends. These guys who are on either side of me. This is, you know, this is who we are. And soldiers end up doing things that are unrighteous. It happens. It happens on the battlefield. For Jesus, the war he's going to wage... It's all in righteousness. There's no mistakes. There's no errors. What he's doing is righteous. And so his righteous warfare comes out of his sovereignty and his righteousness. He is the one who has the power 
to rule. He has the one, he's the sovereign one. He's the one who decides what's right and what's wrong. And if it's wrong, he will stand against it. And he will oppose everything that is not of God. That's his sovereign right. But isn't it wonderful that as I was thinking about those two things, sovereignty and righteousness, when Jesus came to die for us, he came in grace and truth. So that his second time he could come in sovereignty and righteousness. So thank God for the grace and truth by which he came. And now for his sovereign and righteous rule. Describes his eyes were like a flame of fire. This is a piercing vision. This, is, this has been used in chapter 1. It's been used in other places, uh, the eyes of the Lord. I know many people that say, um, Homer was even telling us the other day uh, that he'd had a vision and he saw, saw the Lord and it was his eyes. And how many have heard people who've had visions and they see the Lord and it's their eyes? It's, it's the eyes consistently. It's the eyes of the Lord. And they're full of what? Full of love. It's, everybody describes it that way. But when he comes back, look at this. It's, these, aren't, these aren't pools of love. These are flaming eyes of judgment. Piercing through the hearts of men. There's no facade that anybody's going to be able to put up. Hey, Jesus, I believe in you. No, he knows whether you do. And his piercing eyes will judge that. He has that right. And he makes his war in righteousness. So as his eyes penetrate and his eyes see all these things, he knows how to make his proper judgment. But one of my commentaries brought my attention to this. These are the same eyes that wept over Jerusalem when they wouldn't repent. Pastor Jeff read that passage this past week in Matthew 25, 24, 23. And he's coming out of the city and he looks over the city and he wept. You don't want me. I came to you. But you don't want me. And it's just overwhelming when you think. And I remember the first time I went to Israel with, uh, with Pastor Bob, and we were, we were up on the Mount of Olives, and we were looking at that city. And this, this passage it just overwhelmed me. There was a whole city full of people that really represent the whole world. But you don't want me. But those are the same eyes that looked at Peter <laughs> when the cock crowed. Yeah, Peter, I know. I know your failures. It's those eyes, but they were full of what? Love. It's the same eyes that looked upon the woman caught in adultery. It's the same eyes that wept at Lazarus' tomb. Same eyes that wept when the rich young ruler walked away. Yeah. <laughs> but now his eyes are full of judgment. Next thing it says, he has many crowns. 
Now, this word crown is the Greek word uh, diadem, diadema, and, and it's, it's the, the crown of royalty. It's the crown of a sovereign lord. It's only used uh, in the book of Revelation, and it's only found here and then two times in reference to the Antichrist, the beast. They have these crowns. And so um, we're on the bottom of page two. And so it says that these crowns, these diadems, this is, this is royalty. What? The Antichrist has got a diadem? Yeah, but it's what? Zirconium? Plastic? It's glass? Yeah. It's a good-looking tiara, but it's just made out of plastic. Yeah. Eb got it from Burger King. He's got the Burger King crown. Thank you, Harold. Wraps my class up right there. Yeah. And so it's just, it's, it's, his crowns are fake. Jesus is real, and he's got what many crowns. It wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for a king to have more than one crown. And sometimes they would place two or three crowns upon their head, but they would also have their crowns on display. I got this king, I conquered this king, I conquered this king, I've got, I've got all their crowns. And they didn't melt them down and change them. Sometimes they adapted them, maybe added more jewels to them and wore them for themselves. But this is the crown of royalty. Now the other crown is called a Stephanus, a victor's crown. And the Stephanus is given uh, it for military uh, victory, for victory in the Olympics, uh, for uh, doing good deeds for, uh, for your civil works. And so a victor's crown was something that you earned. It's something because you did something. Notice Jesus' crown when he's coming back is not about him doing anything. He's got this crown before he ever does anything. Why? Because he's been wearing this crown since he got thrown as the God-man. But in actuality, he's had this crown since what? Since before the beginning. He's been the Lord who would be Lord of Lords, even when there were no Lords. And he's already crowned, and his victory is already there. But there's other places where we can find this victor's crown. It's the crown that he gives rewards for believers who uh, wear these crowns. And so this word can be found in other places, but here the crown he's wearing is a diadem. He is, top of page three, he's the king of kings and lord of lords uh, without doing anything. He just is. Before he defeats them all, he already is. That's why he's going to judge righteously and make war righteously. These crowns uh, definitely are his, but they're in great contrast to a crown he wore when he was last on the earth. A crown of thorns. That was mocking. But you know what? Jesus wore it with honor. Yeah. Put the crown on me because my blood is paying for your sin. 
whatever soldier, whichever soldier pushed that crown down upon his head, through those eyes, Jesus was looking at that man saying, I love you. And I'm dying for you. So go ahead. Put the crown on my head. Put the lashes on my back. The nails in my hand. Go ahead. Because what I'm doing is so that you can be saved. Isn't that glorious? What a, what a God we have. What a Savior. The next thing that comes up is his name. And this is the strange part uh, of this verse. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He's got a name that no one knows. Now, here's the amazing thing. In a number of the commentaries that I have studied and listened to different ones, they spend two or three pages sometimes trying to figure out what this name is. But you know what? If Jesus said, it's a name that no one knows but me, guess what? No one knows but him. So drop it. Drop trying to figure out what the name is and recognize what it represents. A name that no one knows but him shows us that who Jesus is is far beyond anything that our minds can comprehend. There is more to him than all of the volumes of the libraries of the world could contain. There's more to him than your mind can ever conceive. In fact, he has to take us to heaven. So what he told in Ephesians chapter 2, that one of the reasons he takes us to heaven is so that he can show us all the grace that he's bestowed upon us. He can't, God can't even tell you all that he did to save you because your mind can't conceive it. But one day you will. And you'll get your renewed body, your resurrection body, and your glorified state, and you will know things that you didn't even have to go to college to learn. Yay. I don't have to sit in Jeff's class for another lesson. <laughs> Right? I got it. And I didn't have to learn Greek to know it. All right, so all these things uh, are wrapped up in this name that no one knows. Because this name represents so much more. When, when Jehovah, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, Moses said, Tell me your name. And he said, I am. Well, that's not a name. Ian is a name, Ian. Liam is a name. Ephraim is a name. Moses is a name. Jeff is a name. I am. It's not a name. It's a verb. There's so much more to that name than could be conceived. So... Throughout the history of Israel, they began taking that name and attaching it to other words. They put it together with their name, Elijah. As they put Yahweh together with El and came up with Elijah. And so every time you see the J-A-H, or in Hebrew, Y-A-H, attached 
to a name either of a city or a place or a person. They're pulling that name into it. God used it to describe himself in redemptive names. Jehovah Hira, Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Rapha. And so God tied his name together with other ways to express who he was. But every time he found one, he found another. It's just another aspect of this God. Another aspect of all that he is. I was asked several years ago uh, by Don and Donna Treadway to teach at the um, YWAM school in Hawaii. And so they uh, brought me there to the disciple program and the medical group and asked me to teach on the character of God. And they gave me three lessons, or five, maybe five, maybe it was five lessons. It's like, whoa. So I thought, okay, I can, I can do this. So I went and got, there's a book, I can't think of the author's name or offhand, uh, on the character of God. It's like this thick in small print. And I thought, well, I can't teach that. So I got down my systematic theology and went through that. I thought, okay, well, maybe he's got it condensed in some way. No, it was entire volume. <laughs> All right, that's not going to work. Uh, so, man, how do, you, how do you teach the character of God? It is so deep. And when you think you've got that, then there's something else tied to it because God is not just this one thing. He's all of them. And so this name that no one knows is a name that describes the fact that he cannot be known. The fullness of everything that Jesus is can't be known. I love the passage in Judges chapter 13 where Manoah, the father of Samson, was asking the angel and uh, told him that he, they were going to have a child. And Manoah uh, asked a question. And he said, well, so what is your name? And he's rebuked for it. Why do you ask my name? It's beyond understanding. Or we translate it in any Bibles. It's translated, my name is wonderful. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. The Hebrew word wonderful or marvelous means beyond understanding. His name is so overwhelming. And I thought of this verse, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror, what? Dimly. But then, then when? When the Lord returns. When the Lord's, but then, face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. There is a day coming when we will know beyond anything we could learn on this earth. We'll just know. You know, I could, I would love to spend days in the Smithsonian Museum. I would. It would, and I'm not. I'm not saying don't take me there and give me three hours in the Smithsonian. I, I will hurt you. <laughs> I promise I will. It's too much. It's too much to see. So don't don't tell me what's there. Take me there. So I can experience it. And so. 
there's a Greek word for knowledge, which is to learn, gnosis, right? And so you learn things that you things that are taught, things that are spoken to you, things that you read, gnosis. Uh, it's so you learn, and that's how most of us get our input. But there's another Greek word for knowledge, oida, O-I-D-A, or an E in Greek, but oida. And that means to perceive fully. It's one thing for you to tell me everything that's in the Smithsonian and describe it and tell me what it's about. It's another thing to just dump me off there and say, take as long as you want. Because then I'm going to experience what's there. And so this is the word that's used for this glorious statement concerning Jesus. He has a name which no one knows but he himself. Will we ever know that name? Yes. I think so. I think when, when, as Paul says, when we are made new, when we're no longer looking in a mirror, but we're able to see directly we're going to see, but then we're going to have a mind that is not just been renewed, but has been recreated mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to perceive and understand things that are beyond what we can understand now yes. and to see the glories mm -hmm. that will be in heaven. And the beautiful part is we got eternity to observe it. What are you going to do today? Well, there is no today, but what are you going to do, you know, for the next part of eternity? I don't know. I'm going to think I'm going to go over and look at some of the planets. I don't know. I may, I may go down to the bottom of the sea and see what's down there just to experience it. Well, you can't live into that pressure. I'm not subject to physical things anymore. I got a new body. I got a new creation. I'm, I'm not subject to this world's limitations. Sure. I could breathe underwater. Be better than Star Trek with a universal translator in your mind. You'll understand everybody that talks, no matter what language they're talking. I'm in China. I get everybody to sing one song. I said, there's one song that we can sing that no matter what language you speak, we can all sing it. Hallelujah. They say it a little bit different in Chinese, but it's still the same word. Hallelujah. So it's, you know, it's, there's all kinds of languages, but one of these days, there won't be. And one of these days, we will look upon him and see him beyond anything that we've ever understood. It's so beautiful. Now, I don't know. Some of you may like it. Some of you may not like it. The Chosen. I like it. And I've, I've, I've liked the episodes that I've watched so far. Other people say I don't care for it. That's fine. But to me, I'm, I'm seeing something. But you know what? No matter how beautiful that is, no matter how, how overwhelmed I get sometimes reading the gospel stories and, and trying to, to make them alive in my mind, and sometimes I, you know, I'm overwhelmed with tears as I think of how Jesus loved and how he gave and what he did. Other times I'm so filled with joy. And, and it, but one of these days... 
see him as he is. And here's the beautiful part. We will be, say it, like him. Isn't that glorious? So, so awesome. That's what God has for us. All right? That's as far as we'll get tonight. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have uh, shown us how great and awesome you are. Father, just the thoughts of your coming. To, to, to read John's words are just a handful of words. But one of these days, we will see this. Even as we come with our Lord. Father, there are so many people in this world who need to know the God of salvation, who need to know you as Savior before you come as judge. Father, by your Spirit, draw them. Give us words to speak to them. Through your supernatural works and signs, draw them to yourself. Father, bring them that they too may know you as Lord and Savior. And Father, we thank you for all that you do and all that you are in our life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right.